But we've come to the end of the book of Nehemiah. It's been quite a ride. I hope that you've enjoyed your time in this book. I, I had it in mind this week to go through the book and count up how many different names we've read from this pulpit, but I just didn't have that much time uh, to devote in this week. Surely, though, we've hit over a thousand names in over a dozen different lists, but this is the end. We are almost done. The question is going to be, what kind of end is this? You know, the end of a book typically leaves readers with different kinds of feelings depending on what book you're reading. A tragedy might leave the reader sad. A horror novel might leave the door open at the end for future scares. A a comedy wants to leave you with a laugh at the end. A romance might want to make you throw up, right? But many, many novels leave you with this emotional catharsis at the end to complete the journey that you began on page one. The question is, how does Ezra and Nehemiah end? We're going to have to read and consider the type of ending that this book gives us. We know how it began. This book began on a high note. It began with great hope and with great courage. After 70 years of exile, the people of God have come back into the land that God promised them. And the people start off by demonstrating great faithfulness, even through great trials. Our series title for this book has been God's Faithfulness in Great Frustrations. And we've seen God's faithfulness. And at shining points of this book, we've also seen great faithfulness of God's people, which is rare in an Old Testament book. They return from the comfort of Persia to the difficulties of Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the wall. They face down opposition. They have these great shining moments of celebration and dedication and spiritual renewal and recommitment. But in the midst of that, we have also seen great failure of God's people. The people intermarry with the pagans and the idolaters of the land. That's Ezra chapter 9. Then they do it again, Nehemiah chapter 9. The rich and the powerful in the land take advantage of the poor and the oppressed in the land. That's Nehemiah chapter 5. And yet even in the midst of the people's sin, God is still faithful. Nehemiah chapter 8, there's this great revival that begins among the people. They read the Bible, Ezra gets up and preaches, and the people respond. Nehemiah 9, they confess their sin and they repent. Nehemiah chapter 10, they commit to a new covenant. We want to serve you, Lord. Through thick and thin, we want to serve you. Do you remember the kinds of things that they committed to in Nehemiah chapter 10? Those covenant commitments, those renewed commitments to the Lord. Three primary things. We'll put up this uh, thing on the screen here. We're going to come back to this a couple times this morning. These were the covenant commitments in Nehemiah 10. Don't intermarry with pagans. Keep the Sabbath holy. And tithe in order to take care of the temple. Now some time has passed between Nehemiah 10 and Nehemiah 13. Remember last week, Pastor Austin led us through Nehemiah 12, where the people dedicate the wall, and there's this great celebration They've got parades going on around the wall. People are sacrificing and there's choirs, all sorts of fanfare. And that celebration doesn't actually end in chapter 12. It continues on to chapter 13. So keep this in mind as we read chapter 13 because it's a continuation of this big revival and this big moment that the people have. Look at chapter 13 starting with verse 1. Notice it takes place on that day. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. 
However, our God turned the curse into a blessing, so when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. By the way, we do have some Bibles coming around. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We're happy to give you one. This is our gift to you. Nehemiah 13, 1-3 takes place on the same day that we read chapter 12. The same day is that big celebration. The people are reading the word of God. They're responding to it, doing their Bible study. They continue to strive to worship God and apply scripture to their new context. And apparently, as they're studying the word, they come across, once again, Deuteronomy chapter 23. That's the passage that they're alluding to here. It's a passage that says, No Ammonite and no Moabite may ever enter the assembly of God. Because of what those two nations did back in the book of Numbers, they are forbidden for being a part of the family of God. Now, let me give you two brief words of explanation to make sure we understand that command. First, I want to really emphasize that this was not a racist thing, Deuteronomy 23. You might say, well, how is it not racist? I mean, they're excluding these two nations from being part of Israel. That sounds a little racist to me, doesn't it? But we have to keep in mind that the teaching of all Scripture bears true here. No Moabite may enter the assembly of God. But remember the book of Ruth? Who is Ruth? What is Ruth? Yeah, Ruth is a Moabite. Seven times that book tells us Ruth is a Moabite. And yet, not only does Ruth enter the assembly of God, but she's the great-grandmother of King David, one of the greatest Israelites of all time. So part of the purpose of the book of Ruth is to help us to understand that not all Moabites are Moabites, spiritually speaking at least. A Moabite can convert to become an Israelite. Then they're no longer considered a Moabite. So it helps us to understand Deuteronomy 23 in context. It's not a racist thing. It's a religious thing. Who is your allegiance to spiritually? Now, second thing, I want us to keep in mind that this commitment in chapter 13 adds another thing to that list. We could put that list up there again, just with one extra line at the bottom here. Now they commit to also excluding Moabites and Ammonites from among them. So four commitments that they make. Don't intermarry with pagans, keep the Sabbath, tithe, and exclude the Ammonites and Moabites. Now, church, I want you to keep those four things in mind as we read the rest of this chapter. Look at verse 4 all the way down to verse 9. It says, Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there with the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Here we go. Church, things are about to get a little bit ugly. You ever heard the saying, when the cat is away, the mice will play? Well, it works like this. When Nehemiah is away... The Israelites will play. 
Nehemiah tells us that at some point his time in Jerusalem had expired. Remember he was a cupbearer for the king and he goes to Jerusalem just for a couple of months to rebuild this wall. Well, eventually his time was up. He has to go back to Persia, back to the king. And, he, and at some point, some time passes and he decides, I want to go back to Jerusalem again. Let me return to the land and get back in this land and see what's going on, check up on things. So he again gets permission. He travels all the way back to the temple. And what does he find? Well, he finds that Eliashib, who's the high priest, has made a grave mistake. Eliashib was in charge of the temple. He's, he's the guy that's supposed to hold the line in holiness. He's the guy that's supposed to make sure the temple was holy, that nothing was getting in that shouldn't get in, and everything that was in there was supposed to be in there. Only the sacred utensils and the sacred vessels and, and the holy objects and even only the priests were supposed to be in this temple. He was supposed to keep the most holy thing in Israel holy. And what has he done? Well, it says Eliashib is related to this guy named Tobiah. And uh, even back in 430 BC, they had this little problem that we call today nepotism. You ever hear of nepotism? It's where you give special favor or a special position to family members or relatives. It's a problem in politics, in the government. It's a, unfortunately even a problem in some churches. Churches would be wise to, to not allow favoritism of certain families or certain relatives to take over. Ministry leaders and board members should be chosen based on their spiritual qualifications, not who they're related to. We would do well as a church to guard against that. But here, Eliashib, the high priest, has not only allowed nepotism to reign, he's allowed it in the worst way. Eliashib clears out a room in the temple for Tobiah. He removed the people's offerings. He removes the holy utensils, the stuff that was supposed to be used to help people to worship God. Remember all those gifts that we read about the people giving in chapter 10? They pour out their offerings to the Lord and they fill this storehouse, this whole big room with all these offerings. Eliashib takes all those things out of the room and he gives it to Tobiah to live there. Prime apartment space in a place reserved for God's holy things. And in a place where only God's holy people, the priests, were supposed to tread. But what's even worse is that you might remember this guy, Tobiah. Do you remember that name in the book of Nehemiah? And remember some of the covenant commitments the people made? Covenant commitment number one, don't intermarry. Number two, keep the Sabbath holy. Number three, tithe. And number four, exclude all Ammonites and Moabites. Now, we've met this guy, Tobiah, before. We've met him several times. Here's just one verse to jog your memory from Nehemiah 4. Now, Tobiah, the Ammonite, was near him. And he said, even what they're building, if a fox should jump on this wall, he will break that wall down. Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's one of the primary antagonists in the book of Nehemiah. He's a bad guy in this story. And not only do they not exclude him for being an Ammonite, but they clear a room for him in the temple. As soon as Nehemiah steps foot out of the land, the people break one of their four covenant commitments before the Lord. And they were led to do so by the guy that's supposed to be leading the charge in holiness. They're led to do so by the spiritual leader in the land. Now at this point, you start to see some of Nehemiah's leadership style emerge. 
In order to take care of this terrible problem, Nehemiah himself has to enter into the temple, the place where he's not supposed to be. The sin of the people caused him to break one of his commitments to the Lord. Back in chapter 6, maybe you remember that, that time in chapter 6 where the bad guys are trying to get Nehemiah to come into the temple in order to kill him, to assassinate him. And Nehemiah says, no, I will never step foot in this temple. It's not for me. Well, here, things have gotten so bad, he has to break his own commitment in order to go in and clean house. And literally, he cleans house. It's almost like when you were a teenager. Remember that time your mom got so mad, she took all of your clothes and threw them out the window, and when you got home, you saw all your stuff all over the yard? Anyone have that ever happen? Or is it, was it only me that had a dysfunctional childhood? Is it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I had a great childhood. Um, but what, what does Nehemiah find when he gets home? He, he finds that stuff is where it shouldn't be, and he throws it out the window, clears it out. Get this man out of the temple. But not only that, it gets worse before it gets any better. Look at verse 10. He says, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away, each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials, and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil to the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Remember those covenant commitments? I'm just going to keep reminding you of these. Don't intermarry, keep the Sabbath tithe and care for the temple <laughs> whoops seems that they broke another one here while nehemiah was away back in persia the people stopped tithing and it got so bad that the levites the priests the people who were supposed to be taken care of by these tithes the people who were supposed to be keeping the temple up and running and and their job was literally supported by the tithes of the people they were no longer being paid and had to leave the temple and go get secular jobs. It would be like if, if all of our church members stopped tithing, what do you think would happen? We'd end up dropping missionaries. We would have to let go of staff. We would lose funding for ministries. It would be terrible, wouldn't it? You know, some things like this happen to churches at times. You know when they happen? When people lose faith in the vision and the ministry, they stop giving. That's when people stop giving, when they lose faith in the vision and in the ministry. People give to what they believe in. For the Israelite community, they didn't any longer believe in what God was doing. What do you think would happen when you move out all the tithes and put a guy named Tobiah, an Ammonite, in the middle of the temple? People aren't going to believe in the vision of God anymore. One sin begets the other. So the people stopped giving. The Levites have been spread all out throughout the land and no one's there to take charge and run the temple that they've been building this entire book. Israelite society as God intended it is falling apart at the seams. So Nehemiah steps back in and he tries to solve the problem once again. And what does he do? He, he appoints a committee. Some churches, uh, they love making new committees. You ever go in a church like this where every problem is solved by a new committee that they make? 
Nehemiah appoints a committee. He gets a priest, a scribe, a Levite, and a layperson. It's almost, it almost sounds like the start of a bad joke, right? A priest, a scribe, a Levite, and a layperson all walk into a bar. Well, what do they do? He, he gets this diverse group of people to oversee the restoration of the tithe and to help the Levites move back in. Now, before we move on with the text, I want to show you one thing and wrestle with another. Here's what I want to show you. I want to show you carefully the wording in verse 11. Look again at verse 11. Nehemiah, it says, reprimands the people, and he says, why is the house of God forsaken? Now, just for a moment, turn backwards again to chapter 10. Look at verse 39. Chapter 10, verse 39. This is at the end of their renewed covenant commitment to God. They promise not to intermarry. They promise to keep the Sabbath, to tithe to the Lord. And at the end of that commitment, Nehemiah says in chapter 10, verse 39, thus we will not neglect the house of our God. Do you see that? It's actually the same word there in Hebrew. Neglect and forsake. The same word. Nehemiah 10, they all promise we will not forsake the house of God. Nehemiah 13, we have forsaken the house of God. Do you see that connection there? What they have promised to do, they have already broken. Now let me wrestle with one thing before we move on. What's with Nehemiah's prayer in verse 14? What do you think about that? Think about this again. Many people are kind of bothered by this, maybe rightly so. Is this Nehemiah just kind of saying, God, things have been rough. Please remember me for the good things that I've done. I've I've tried my best to reform this people. Please bless me for that. Or does this prayer come across as a little self-serving to you? Remember me. Don't blot out my loyal deeds, which I have performed. Could you imagine one of your pastors praying like that at the end of a service? Lord, please remember me for this great sermon. Don't forget to bless me for all of my faithfulness and my good works. Amen, you may be dismissed. (laughs) The reason this is a little bothersome, I think, is because it's such a contrast to the other prayers in this book. Ezra 9, Ezra prays this great prayer. Oh my God, I am ashamed. I am embarrassed to lift up my face to you, God. Our iniquities have risen up to you above our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Our, our, our. He's praying inclusively as if it's his own sin, even though we know he didn't commit that sin in Ezra 9. Same thing in Nehemiah 1. We have acted very corruptly against you. Same thing in Nehemiah 9. You have dealt faithfully, Lord, but we have dealt corruptly. But here, remember me, God, for my goodness. We're going to have to come back to this again. We'll see this again before the sermon is done. It's certainly missing that, that corporate confessional element of other prayers that we have seen in this book. Is it right? Is it wrong? Let's hold that question and wrestle with it again in a few minutes. Look at the next big section of this this chapter, though, starting in verse 15. Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah 13, verse 15. It says, In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? 
Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble? Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now pause there just for a moment. What's the next thing that Nehemiah sees when he comes back to the land? The people have failed to keep the Sabbath. They're selling things on the Sabbath day in Jerusalem. They're allowing foreigners from other cities to come in and sell their merchandise in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Notice how Nehemiah reacts. Once again, you have that word reprimanded. Pay attention to that word. You see it a couple times in this text. That word could be translated contended with, quarreled with. This is not just like grandma scolding you for not taking off your shoes when you come into the house. This is more like grandpa reaming you out for wrecking his car. That's the kind of word that this is here. Nehemiah says to them, did not your fathers do the same thing? Isn't this why we went into exile in the first place? This kind of sin is why God judged us. And here you are doing the same kind of sins again, which got us exiled and judged. Are you crazy? What are you thinking? Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Are you beginning to see a cycle of rebellion with the people of God? What does Nehemiah do about this? You've got to love this part of the text. Look at verse 19. He says, It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and the merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this, um, for this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Now again, we see Nehemiah's leadership style kind of start to rise to the surface. Sabbath day begins at sundown. Uh, we typically think about our days starting at sunrise and ending at uh, sunrise the next day or ending at sundown. But the Jews thought of their day as starting at sundown and going to the next sundown. Do you know why that is, by the way? Genesis chapter 1, there was evening and there was morning the first day. So they look at Genesis 1 in creational order. They say evening to morning, not morning to evening. So they start their Sabbath at sundown in the evening and it goes all the way through the next day. So what does Nehemiah do? He notices people are selling stuff on the Sabbath. So as soon as the sun sets on Friday evening, Sabbath begins, he shuts the gates to the cities, he locks them, he puts guards outside of them, and he says no one is able to come into the city, especially not any merchants. Can't buy, you can't sell, you can't trade. And it took a week or two for this to catch on to some of these merchants. They get a little cranky, don't they? Not allowed to sell anything for half the weekend, that really cuts into their profit margins. But Nehemiah isn't phased. He starts to threaten them. That's in verse 21. You keep camping out in front of these walls, I will use force against you, he says. Literally, the text reads there, I will send a hand against you. The Brian Murawski version reads, I will lay a smackdown on you, right? <laughs> I will fight you physically. Again, can you imagine a church leader doing something like this today? If I see you buying stuff on Amazon on a Sunday, I will come over there and personally kick your butt. 
I mean, it, it's great. Say what you want about Nehemiah, but the man knows how to make things happen, doesn't he? Then he gives another one of those one-liner prayers at the end. For this also remember me, O my God. Have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. God, I stop people from selling things on the Sabbath. Bless me for that. Don't forget what I've done for you, Lord. Again, I'm not quite sure what to think of this. On one hand, I think that most of us have probably prayed prayers like this at some point of our lives. Lord, please remember me for the work that I've done. Please, Lord, don't forget me for what I've done for you. On the other hand, there's something bothersome about these prayers, something that sounds a little self-righteous, self-centered. Remember me, oh my God. I mean, if you're going to pray something like that, at least pray it silently, not out loud especially coming on the heels of these other great community-centered prayers in this book. We're going to see one more before we close out. But by now, I think you're starting to notice a pattern, aren't you? You could probably even guess what's coming next. The Israelites commit to exclude the Ammonites and the Moabites. And what does Nehemiah find? An Ammonite has been given a room in the temple. The Israelites commit to tithe and to care for the temple. And what does Nehemiah find? The people stop tithing. The Israelites commit to keep the Sabbath holy, and what happens? They break the Sabbath. What was the final thing that they committed to doing in Nehemiah chapter 10? Don't intermarry. That was a problem in this book, wasn't it? Ezra 9, they intermarried. Nehemiah 9, there was intermarriage. Surely they can't break that for a third time in the same book. Can they? I think you know what's going to happen. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. Before we even go any further, just feel the impact of this. It even specifically mentions Ammon and Moab, and then it throws in Ashdod as like the icing on the cake another foreign nation, even beyond the two that we've already seen. It's so bad that they've forgotten to train their kids in the Hebrew language. They can't even read scripture, their children. They've rejected the faith to the extent that they don't even care to raise their kids in the word of God. And quite frankly, let me just point this out. That actually takes effort, doesn't it? I mean, what second generation American do you know that can't speak any language of their parents. I mean, most second-generation people are bilingual. It almost takes an effort not to be because it's being spoken in your house. The next, next generation in this text are now in danger of losing their faith forever. The grandkids of the first generation are being raised outside the faith. What hope do these people have? Every one of those covenant commitments that we saw in Nehemiah 10 have been broken. Look at this chart one more time. We'll put it up there. Don't intermarry with pagans, chapter 10. Well, what do they do? They intermarry with pagans. Keep the Sabbath holy, they commit, and then they break the Sabbath. Let's make sure we tithe and care for the temple. Not only do they not tithe, but now the Levites who are caring for the temple are out of there. Exclude the Ammonites and Moabites. Well, an Ammonite gets a room in the temple. You see what I mean? If this book were to end in Nehemiah chapter 12, what a happy ending it would be. Great celebration, great rejoicing, a 
real pick-me-up. God's word prevails. The exile has cured the problem of sin. God, good leadership leads to revival. Praise the Lord. But then we get to chapter 13. It's the kind of ending where you, you, you sit there and you like stare at the page and wonder, what did I just miss? Did I read this correctly? I remember going to the movies a while back and seeing Avengers Infinity War. Remember, remember that one? This is where the big purple bad guy tries to take the stones and erase half of existence. And all the good guys are fighting against him, trying to stop him from doing it. And at the end of the movie, the bad guy wins. With a snap of his finger, Spider-Man gets vaporized. Black Panther turns to dust. Half of the world is erased. And in the last shot of this movie, you see this bad guy sit down and relax, enjoying his victory. And I remember sitting there in the theater and watching that, and the credits are rolling, and everyone's just staring at the screen like, what just happened? Like, are, are, did they forget the last scene where the good guys come and, and declare victory? Did the bad guy really just win? Did I just watch my beloved childhood superheroes get vaporized on screen? Could this really be the end? That's Nehemiah. All of our hopes just turned to dust. We just watched the good guys get vaporized right before our eyes. Well, what does Nehemiah do about this problem? His reaction by now also probably won't surprise you. Verse 25, Nehemiah writes, So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made for him a king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? How many of you have Nehemiah parenting styles? For the third time in this text, we see that he uses this word contend. It was translated reprimand in verse 11 and verse 17. Same word though here. Again, this is not just like a little scolding. This is a, a contentious battle with people. He calls down curses upon them. He hits them. He pulls out their hair. Now contrast that with what happened with Ezra when he encountered the sin of intermarriage in chapter 9 of Ezra. Remember this? He says, when I heard of this matter, I tore my garment and I tore my robe. I pulled out some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Ezra hears of the sin of intermarriage and he confronts it by pulling out his own hair. Nehemiah hears of it and he confronts it by pulling out their hair. Which kind of a leader are you? different styles here. Now, I've got to be careful because I'm having some fun with the text here, but I'm not saying that this is necessarily the best style of leadership today, right? Or the best thing to do when faced with a situation like this. Clearly, Nehemiah loses control. Just because it's described in Scripture doesn't mean it's prescribed for us to do. The narrator nowhere says, go and do likewise. I mean, sometimes we would like to go and do likewise, let's be honest, but that's not how it should work. Notice also that Nehemiah's reaction also differs from Ezra's reaction in another way. Ezra agrees, mass divorce, that's the way we've got to deal with this. Divorce your wives, get rid of those kids, but Nehemiah merely makes them take an oath not to do it again. 
Two different ways of solving the same problem. But you know what? If I had a hazard to guess, if, if, I had a, if I had to imagine that God gave us Nehemiah 14 and then Nehemiah 15 after that, what I would guess is that, number one, we'd probably have another list of names in one of those chapters. But, but number two, we would have a report of this oath not working. I don't think Nehemiah's fix is a real fix. You know how I know that? Because I've read the rest of this book. And I've read the rest of the Old Testament. God's people are a rebellious people. In fact, if you compare the oath that Nehemiah makes them make here with the oath that they took back in chapter 10, look what you see. We'll put these on the screen side by side or parallel. Nehemiah 13, he makes them take this oath. You shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. That's almost the same wording as Nehemiah chapter 10. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. This is the same oath they already made and broke. What gives us any hope that they can keep this oath again? Well, the situation is even worse than you would imagine. Look at verse 28. He says, Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Let me walk you through this. Sometimes it's helpful for me. I'm a visual learner, so I like to chart things out. So let me put a chart up on the screen for you. Eliashib, the high priest, has a grandson who married Samballot's daughter. Now, why is that an issue? Number one, Samballot is the other bad guy in Nehemiah. He's not an Israelite. He's a foreigner who opposed Nehemiah and the Israelites at every turn in this book. Number two, sons and grandsons of the high priest should only be marrying other Israelites. This kind of marriage would have excluded them from being able to be high priests themselves. And number three, look back at Ezra chapter 10, perhaps the worst of it all. Ezra 10 is a list of all those in the previous generation who were guilty of intermarriage. And in Ezra 10 verse 24, in this list of all those who were guilty, it mentions Eliashib. So the end of Ezra, Eliashib the high priest is guilty of the sin of intermarriage. At the end of Nehemiah, Eliashib's grandson is guilty of the sin of intermarriage and intermarriage with the enemy at that. No one has learned from their sin. The problem of Nehemiah is the problem of Ezra. The problem of Nehemiah is the problem of the rest of Scripture. The problem of Nehemiah is our problem. This is the problem of humanity. Well, how does it end? Let's read down to the last verse. Picking it up in verse 29, Nehemiah says, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. So at first, Nehemiah switches up the remember prayers. Remember them. Not for good, though. Remember them as in remember the evil they did. Remember the bad things that they did. Remember them in judgment, God. And then Nehemiah again lets us know how great he is. I did all these things, God. I kicked them out. I purified the place. Remember me for good, but remember them for evil. 
At worst, this prayer is self-centered and egotistical arrogance. At best, this prayer reflects his disgust with the people. Either way, this is a bleak ending, isn't it? All the good guys have turned to dust. And if we have had any hope of revival, it's gone. The end. Hope is not found in exile. Exile cured nothing. Hope is not found in the leaders, Ezra or Nehemiah. I mean, where is Ezra in this chapter anyway? Did you see him? I didn't. Is he dead? Did he retire? Did he move? We have no idea. Hope is not found in our own ability to keep God's law. My friend Gary says it like this. He writes, The perpetual sinfulness of God's people, demonstrated in addiction to rebellion, necessitates that God find another way to accomplish the salvation he has promised. The problem of Nehemiah isn't solved in Nehemiah. I'll reword that and I'll say it like this. The ending of Nehemiah hangs incomplete without the message of the cross. The failure of the believers reveals a deeper problem of sin. And this book points us forward to a more meaningful solution than exile, a more meaningful solution to human leadership, and a more meaningful solution even to covenant unity and our ability to keep God's word. Believers must place their hope in Jesus Christ if you have any hope at all in your constant rebellion and failure. The ending of this book makes us yearn for a savior. We desire a greater solution. In a way, it summarizes the hopes of the entire Old Testament. We need a Messiah. In order to be delivered from this problem of sin, we need Jesus Christ because he is our only hope. You don't find that hope in Ezra and Nehemiah, but what you do is you find an arrow pointing to that hope. The ending of this book points forward to the gospel. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that for Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The hope of Ezra and the hope of Nehemiah is found in the cross of Christ. This story does not have an ending until we meet Jesus. That's where our ending is found. Next week, we're going to open up 1 Peter. And 1 Peter, the very first chapter, he writes this. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Church, that is our hope. Right there. Ezra Nehemiah points us forward to the blessed hope found only in the resurrection and life of Jesus Christ. I'm going to close our series in a word of prayer. After I pray, I'm going to ask that you stick around just for a few more minutes. We thought it would be most appropriate to have Pastor Austin come up and close this series with one final list of names. <laughs> but this time, names of new members. So let's, let's take a moment and pray. 
Father, I am so profoundly grateful for the privilege of being able to preach this text and to recognize the hope of Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for the reality that we see in this text, the reality of our human failure and sin. But thank you, God, for the way it points forward to the gospel, found only in the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord, may we put our faith in you. May we not put our faith in human leadership. May we not put our faith in human government. May we not put our faith in our own ability to keep your word. But may we put our faith in Jesus Christ who has done so for us. Lord, I pray that as a community of believers here, you would revive our hearts, that you would help us to center ourselves in you, and Lord, that you may be glorified in the way that we live, in the way that we worship, and we just thank you so much for that wonderful gift of Christ. We look forward to continuing our studies in what you have done for us, and I pray that as we leave here this morning, we can reflect our hearts upon those truths. In Jesus' name, amen.